was a, a fun week for me. I had, had all kinds of uh, opportunities to do some, some, some good ministry. And uh, Thursday and Friday, I had a wedding. It was a wedding rehearsal and then the wedding on Friday night. And uh, at the rehearsal dinner, I, I was speaking to someone uh, who I just met. It was the, the father of the groom. And we were talking a little bit. And, you know, you kind of have those get-to-know-you questions you ask. And we were asking them back and forth. And we're talking about cars, and, and I had a, an old Jeep that I tore apart down to the frame and rebuilt, and um, his son was, was uh, into marksmanship, and so we're talking about you know, guns a little bit, and um, all these different things, and it led him to a question where all of a sudden he says, so what made you become a pastor? And it really became this point where the more he got to know me, you know, whether it was my appearance, the, the things I was interested in, um, whatever it was, he had some questions about me answered that didn't fit with his understanding of, of who he thought I might be. And so as he had those uh, questions answered, it led to more questions to where finally he just came out and said, like, why are you a pastor? What, what got you to that point? It just it, it wasn't something he was used to, and that led to an awesome conversation, just uh, getting to share with him my love for God and my love for people. And um, it was an awesome conversation, an awesome day. But uh, I think we see that all the time, where when we get one question answered, we're satisfied in that, but it opens the door to a whole other realm of questions, right? Whether it's just about getting to know someone or if we're trying to learn something, uh, you learn something, so okay, well, that has implications beyond that. And so, you know, sure, I got one question answered, but now there's three more that I need to figure out. See, we are wrapping up our Glad You Asked series this week. Uh, next week, we'll be beginning a new series called Overcome. We're looking at how in John, uh, Jesus says that he's, I've overcome the world and how in that truth lies peace. And we don't need to live in a, a world of fear. We don't need to live motivated or driven by fear because Jesus has overcome the world. And so that's going to be a series I'm really looking forward to as we talk about fear and, and uh, living fearlessly and all that kind of stuff. And so I invite you to come out not only to the one service, but for our new series, Overcome. But today we're wrapping up Glad you asked. Uh, it's my hope and my prayer that as we've gone through this series, you've had your questions answered. Again, maybe the questions we've addressed weren't yours specifically, but maybe as we posed them, you're like, oh yeah, I have always kind of wanted to know that. So hopefully you've had some questions answered. And honestly, I hope that you have more questions now. I hope that these answers have led to more questions. And I know it probably puts you in a little bit of, of tension where you're like, well, no, I, I thought I would go through this series and then have peace and rest because all my questions would be answered and then I can just relax. But now I have all these new questions that you're hoping that I have and now I have to go seek the answer to those. Yeah, that's kind of my, my hope and my prayer for us. It's because the, the, this pursuit of truth is a good and healthy thing for all people. You know, one of the questions that came in that we, we didn't have time to address on a uh, for a whole sermon, uh, was one about dinosaurs. Where, how, how do dinosaurs fit into the Bible? Where, where, where do they come from? And uh, if that's a question that you've been wondering, I'm going to give you a little bit just to kind of prime the pump just to get it started and then send you off on that. I would encourage you to turn to Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41. Uh, we're not going to unpack it right now, but if you want to make a note of that, if you're interested in how do dinosaurs fit in to the Bible, uh, you see two different creatures described in, in Job 40 and Job 41. One is the behemoth, and the other one is the, 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 the Leviathan. 
And there are these massive creatures that are described. And uh, as you begin to read their description, you see this is like uh, the king of beasts, you know, the king of the uh, beasts of the land and then the king of the beasts of the sea. And some scholars would say this is kind of like what, what, a, what a dinosaur might be like. And so some would say, okay, well, we see dinosaurs in Scripture, or at least a, a, a recollection of them. And other people say, oh no, that's just uh, describing some animal that no longer exists, which, yes, I know dinosaurs no longer exist, but a different animal who wasn't a dinosaur that is no longer with us. But see, so even as you kind of begin to unpack that, again, it brings up more questions. As you look into this question of how do dinosaurs fit into Scripture, a question that comes up uh, eventually is going to be, well, how old do you believe the earth to be? And while there's a bunch of different theories on there, there's two predominant ones, and the predominant theories are that the earth is young or that the earth is old. Those are kind of the two predominant theories. A young earth would say that we are about 6,000 years old uh, with an appearance of age. With an appearance of age. So, well, scientists have found this and that. And they would say because of, you know, you can measure the sediment of, of, you know, of a river basin and every year so much flows down. And so if you measure how thick it is, you can tell, okay, like the rings on a tree, you can count back and say we're this old. And they would say, okay, well, a flood w- would affect all that. We can have a, a, a torrential downpour in just one night and landscape can change significantly in that with mudslides or different, you know, washouts, roads getting washed away. So imagine a flood that would cover the earth. And even if you struggle with the, script, with, with the Bible, you say, I'm not sure if I, if I believe the Bible, Steve. Uh, that, that's okay because for every single, just about every single culture that goes back in the days of antiquity has a flood story in it. From Native Americans to, to uh, the Orient, to, there's a story in their history of, of a flood that flooded the earth. And there's evidence of it all throughout. And so it's okay, a flood had, has happened and kind of uh, that, amongst other things, has given a, a young earth the appearance of age. The other side of the spectrum is people would say, okay, it's an old earth. And it really is millions and millions of years old. But then people would say, okay, well, Genesis chapter 1. If we're believing the Bible to be true, God says it was in seven days. Well, some would say, okay, the Hebrew word that it translates as day can not only refer to a 24-hour period, it can also refer to a significant era of time, a significant period of time. And so then you see seven days, maybe not 24 uh, specific days, but, 20, uh, but the seven uh, chunks of time. And you go, okay, well, maybe the earth is millions and millions of years old. And again, I know I'm probably just raising more questions for you, um, but here's what I want you to know. And hopefully you can have this experience in your life as well. I know smart, intelligent people, um, you guys are most of them right here, uh, who are God-loving and they hold varying positions on the age of the earth. I could call up a couple different people, get them in the room together, and they would vehemently disagree on the age of the earth or disagree on where do dinosaurs fit in, but they love the Lord. We cannot let these debates separate us. See, on one hand, there's things that we, we just don't know and will not know. And so we have to ask the question, what impact will that have on my faith? What impact should that have on my faith? If I can never truly know with certainty the truth about how dinosaurs fit in the Scripture or or the truth about how old the earth is, how is that going to affect my faith in my daily lives? Should that have an impact on my faith? Because on the other hand, God has revealed himself to us in many ways. He He reveals himself to us in creation. He reveals himself to us in his word. He reveals himself to us and continues to in, in and through the person of Jesus. And so there's different places we can look 
to uncover who God is. This is a brief little tangent, but I think sometimes, have you ever had a friend who says, oh no, that the Bible and science are completely different? I mean, that they're opposed to each other. Honestly, I think as you dig in, you see they're a lot closer than you think. You actually see that they walk hand in hand. And again, as someone who loves God, that doesn't surprise me because I believe that God established this world the way it is. So why does gravity fall? It was a 9.8 feet. Meters per second squared, feet per second? Yeah, it's been, I've been, I've been out, of, out of it for too long. We've got a few head nods, but sometimes we all just nod our heads so we all feel like we're all in, you know, in agreement so we don't want to say that we don't know. But, um, you know, I kind of believe how God established it, that that was the constant for gravity. Why does math work the way it does? Why is, well, God set those things in place. And as you look at some different things in Scripture, like, wow, this is pretty amazing. There's no way this could be true. This doesn't really happen. We begin to scientifically uncover different things. Oh, maybe this could. They've uncovered plants in, in the Middle East that uh, will spontaneously combust to, to burn off the extra heat, but will not burn. They have a, a wax or an oil in their, their bark, and so they've been known to burn, or at least be engulfed in flames, but not burn. Well, we've got a story of, of God speaking through a burning bush. And again, that doesn't explain the whole story. There's the timing issue that it happened right then and there, and that Moses heard a voice speaking to him through this bush. But we can see how really science and God walk hand in hand. Well, that's not even on my notes. It's all tangent stuff. But the point I'm getting at is God has revealed himself to us. So we don't know everything now. We can still pursue him. So let's be a people that pursue truth. So where do we start? Start here. Who do you say that Jesus is? That's the most significant question we can answer in our lives. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because Jesus has made a claim about who he is. He's claimed to be God. Yes, other people have claimed to be God. And at the end of the day, we probably need to say, okay, who do we say that they are to be? But most of those pretty quickly are, it's evident, okay, they're just some nut job uh, with a complex. When it comes to Jesus, he, he backed it up. There's things he did that you'd think only God can do that. I, I believe he, he truly did. Go to the grave and on the third day rose again. I believe the eyewitness testimonies. It's not just, oh, I believe the Bible because this is, this is why I was raised to believe that the Bible is God's word, but it's a, an accurate recording of eyewitness testimonies as to what they saw. And so start with this question of who do you say that Jesus is? And, and when we're firm in that understanding, the other questions we have don't shake our faith to the point where we're not sure where to go next. They don't throw us off. We can have those doubts. We can have those questions and continue to move forward in our faith. And so if you're not sure in your answer to this question, I would encourage you to say, to pursue this question. And some of that might mean going through your other questions because uh, they may be related. But answer this question with definitiveness. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you believe he was God? Is he Lord? Did he lay down his life on the cross for your sins and mine so we trust in him? Our sins are forgiven and we are seen as perfect and, and righteous before God. Who do you say that Jesus is? Let us be a church that continues to pursue knowledge and truth. And don't allow your questions and your doubts to stop you in your faith. I've seen this all too often where I meet someone, we're talking and, oh yeah, I used to you know, do this. I used to you know, read you know, about God and the Bible. I used to be really involved in, in, in a church. And yeah, then I had this one question about this one thing and I just wasn't really sure what to do with it. And then they stopped everything. They let that one question just completely derail their relationship with Jesus. And I pray we would not be those kind of people. That we'd be able to continue to walk uh, with Jesus while hand in hand working through and struggling with our, our, our doubts and our questions. We don't have to give up 
Jesus just because we have some questions. So continue to pursue knowledge and truth. Also, we need to hold our beliefs before God with an open hand. Acknowledge that we don't know it all. Acknowledge that it's like looking at a mirror that's been fogged over. You can make out most of, of okay, what, what's going on, but we need to wait for the, the glass to clear. We need to wipe parts of it off. We can see more clearly as we dig in more and more, as God reveals more and more of himself to us. And, and, and there will be a day in eternity where we can finally see with full clarity. But as there's things we still, while there's things we still don't know, let's hold our beliefs before God with an open hand. I'm not saying we can't stand on our convictions. Actually, just this month, there's a conviction of mine, a belief about uh, you know, just an aspect of God uh, that I've had ever since I can remember. As far as I can remember being a Christian, as far as I can remember learning about who God is, I had a belief that here's, this is the truth. But just this month, there was a situation that came up that caused me to kind of rethink that. And it wasn't just a, oh, what do I feel? Or, what do I think? I went to God's word, I pulled out the scriptures that, that are in reference to that theological stance. I said, okay, what does it say? Well, here's what it says, and I've always believed it to mean this, and I really went through that and prayed through that and sought wise counsel, talked to some other friends. I talked to someone who I had just shared my beliefs with previously where you know, he needed some counsel in that. I'm like, hey, here's what I believed, and I convinced you of that. I think I found something that's a little different. And we worked through that. We weren't afraid to ask those hard questions. We weren't afraid to be wrong. It landed me in a place where I changed my beliefs a little bit. Before, what I would have said is, is a definitive, you know, this is never changing, this is what it is. I said, well, yeah, but I could see a few instances where we're walking with God, where we're walking with others, where this would be different. And so let's hold our beliefs before God with an open hand as we pursue Him and as we pursue truth. So what is today's question as we wrap up our series? Today's question is, do the sacraments matter? If you don't know what sacraments are, don't worry, we'll explain that. Uh, but the, the original question that was asked was, was regarding communion and uh, all these different questions around communion and the way in which we, we do it. Uh, as I, I began to think about this, um, you know, it just kind of was set in my heart is, is where we live, Johnsburg, uh, is named after St. John's Church. It's, a, it's a, a largely Catholic area. And so if you haven't grown up uh, Catholic yourself, maybe you, you have a Catholic friend or there's some Catholic background, uh, most likely just because of, of its predominance here in Johnsburg and the surrounding communities. And I thought, well, I think it'd be appropriate to kind of address what, what is a sacrament because there's some differences of, of viewpoint on this. Um, and again, just like each week, even if you aren't asking this specific question, I would encourage you to lean in as it, what we talk about today may help you in a future conversation with a friend, with a neighbor, with a loved one. So the question we're asking is, do the sacraments matter? What are the sacraments? Different denominations, different churches identify them differently and believe different things about them. Okay, so I'll start with the Catholic definition. The Catholic definition of a sacrament is a visible sign instituted by God, by Christ, to give grace. So they would say it was something you can tangibly see, and something that we see in Scripture was instituted by Jesus, and the purpose of it is to give grace. These are things like, and I'm going to use some big church words in here, I'll, I'll try to explain them all as best I can, um, but, you know, baptism confirmation, uh, Eucharist, that's basically that's another term for uh, communion. Reconciliation, that'd be uh, like things like confession. Uh, anointing the sick. Uh, holy orders, which is another way to kind of say serving one another, serve, serving our community. Um, 
and then marriage would be, would be the seventh one. So the Catholics would say there's seven of these sacraments that are visible signs instituted by Christ to give grace. Okay? Protestants. Uh, a lot of Protestants, you know, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Evangelicals even kind of fall into this. We'll, we'll look at it a little differently. Some, some churches would even define them or call them by a different title. They wouldn't say sacraments. They would say these are the ordinances. Again, those, these are just kind of church words that we've used to kind of describe what we're talking about. But then everyone uses them a little differently anyway, so it doesn't make a difference. So let's explain what we're talking about. So uh, the Protestants say, okay, we have some different de determining factors as to what qualifies as an ordinance or as a, a sacrament. Instituted by Jesus, okay, there's a common ground there. Taught by the apostles, those are the, the early church fathers, and then practiced by the church. So, so what did Jesus institute? What do the apostles teach? And then what did the church do, the early church? So if it falls into those three categories, then, then there's something significant about that. And so as they look through scriptures, they come up with only two. So Catholics have seven. Uh, Protestants would only have two, baptism and communion. In essence, it's kind of things that Jesus told us to observe with other Christians. Uh, there's a major difference between the, the Catholic definition and the Protestant definition. And, and what the, the major difference is, is the Catholic definition says, here's a means by which God gives us grace, is through these seven things. Whereas the Protestant definition would say, in light of grace... Here's things that we do. And as we look through scriptures, as we come to a, a better understanding of these things, uh, where we are, today's definition, what does it call them? You know, basically we're looking at baptism and communion. Uh, but Meadowland aligns more with that Protestant viewpoint because grace has already been given in Jesus. It's not a Jesus and. It's not, here's some things you have to do in addition to get God's grace. We've already received grace in Jesus. And so while it may seem like a small uh, point to nitpick, it, it, it's significant. I mean, it's almost like a, a chicken and the egg, which one came first, but except this we really can know which goes first. It's not you need to do these things and then you've received God's grace and you can have salvation. It's you receive God's grace and, and we're saved from our sin and here's things we do in light of that grace. You guys all tracking with me? See that difference? And so that's why we're going to look at uh, baptism and communion. While those other set five things that the Catholics say, Here, here's our sacraments, are in Scripture. There are things, and even things that, as followers of Christ that we, we uh, are called to do in varying capacities. Um, these are not things that, that, that give us the grace of God. We've already received the grace of God. It's an important thing to notice. It's an important thing to stand on. Because the gospel is this. The good news of Jesus is this, that, that we stand opposed to God because of our sin. That's what the Bible referred to as the ways we've gone against God. The ways that, you know, whether big or small, the ways we've, we've gone against God. And I apologize for those I didn't like when I used this last time, but it's just something that's been sitting in my heart. And I'm like, this, this is an excellent description of what sin is. It's like poop in your pocket. You can take a little bit out. You don't get all that excited about getting some out because you still have poop in your pocket, right? Until it's all gone, you're not going to be a happy camper. And that, that's like sin. You know, it's a, it's the ways we've gone against God is this garbage in our lives until it's all gone. We can't really get excited about that, whether it's a little bit or a lot. And we, we can't do it on our own. And that's where Jesus comes in. And, and he paid the price on the cross for our sins so that when we trust in him, we're forgiven. And we're wiped clean. We're seen as righteous. Ephesians 2 would tell us, it is by grace through faith that we are saved. By grace through through faith. What does that mean? God gives us grace in offering us Jesus, a way to, to have our sin dealt with, to be in relationship with him and be made righteous. Our job is to receive that through faith. 
And some would say, well, hang on, Steve, you know, we can't put it on us. That's saying that we have control in all this. That, that doesn't put any control on me whatsoever. That just says, here's what I do now. You know, if, if someone were to give you a birthday gift, say, here, I got this for you, and you received it from them, you wouldn't say, hey, look what I did for myself. No, you, you didn't have anything to do with that. Out of the goodness of their heart, out of their love for you, they gave you something, and you simply received it. So God, because he loves us, gave us Jesus, whose death on the cross is a perfect sacrifice to pay for our sins. So that when we receive that, when we say, Jesus, I believe you are God, and I trust in you for salvation, that our sins are wiped clean. That when God sees us, he sees Jesus, who is perfect and righteous, and that sin is dealt with. That is the good news of Jesus. That is the gospel. So if we begin to say, you need this and these sacraments, anytime you hear a gospel plus, the guard should go up. Your guard should go up. Anyone that would say, you need Jesus and this. You need Jesus and you must be baptized by the Holy Spirit. You need Jesus and you must give a, a one-time donation of $59.99 or whatever. Jesus plus, you know, whatever it is. If there's anyone preaching a gospel of Jesus and, it's not biblical. It is by grace through faith. We've received grace in Jesus. Now, in light of what we've received in Jesus, does that call us to do some things? Does that change how we go and live life? Yeah, if you were here with us last week, we talked about some Old Testament laws. And what would we say about Jesus? Jesus changed everything. The way in which God's people interacted with him completely changed when Jesus came. He brought a new covenant, a new promise, a new way to the Father that was sufficient for all time. And so everything should change in our life when we trust in God. It's because We've been made righteous in Jesus that we get baptized. It's because we've been forgiven of our sins that we remember Jesus in communion. These things don't come first, but they come in light of what God is doing and has done in our life. So that's actually a broader question I want us to look at um, here this morning. And the broader question is, what am I supposed to do as a disciple of Jesus? What do I do? What do I do as a disciple of Jesus? And, and, and while this could be an entire year of, of sermons as we talk about all the different things, that what, what does it look like to live as a, as a follower of Christ? I just want to give us two real quick. The first is this, that to live as, as a disciple of Jesus, live like a new creation because we are a new creation. We see this in Colossians chapter 3. We're called to take off the old and then put on the new, to take off our old sinful ways and, and put on the righteous ways of Jesus. Again, this wasn't my intention to have this theme in some of my illustrations, but do you know what a dog, dog does after it throws up? It returns to its vomit. It, that's what we do with our sin sometimes. That, that's what our sin is like. And we, we come back to it. And, and just as we are disgusted by the dog illustration, that's sometimes how we should view our sin. After we've been forgiven by Jesus, it, it, Jesus it's like going back to something that's just disgusting. Colossians 3 calls to, to, to put that off and to put on the ways of Jesus. And I know we're still sinful people. We still make mistakes and there's grace and forgiveness in Jesus. And so we don't have to, to, to beat ourselves up. We don't have to pour all this guilt and shame upon ourselves. But we can receive the forgiveness of God in Jesus and follow the ways of Jesus. So what am I supposed to do as a disciple of Jesus? Live like the new creation that we are in Jesus. Because he changed everything. 
And so if you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior and your life is no different today, then you're missing the reality of who you really are. You're not living in that reality. Are, are you forgiven? If, if you generally trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, yes. But it's like you look at, a, at an infant child and say, are, are they a person? Yes, they're a person. But you know, they, they need someone to walk them through everything. They, 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 there's all this growth that still needs to take place. And there's some of us who've been infant Christians for, for well over a decade. And there's some steps we need to take as we put off the old and put on the new. So what are we supposed to do as a disciple of Jesus? Live like a new creation. Something else we should do is make much of Jesus. Make much of Jesus. How, how, how can we give Jesus glory by the way that we live in our, our lives? How can we share his gospel through the things that we do and say? How can we be his witness, an ambassador of Jesus to those who are around us? How can we make much of Jesus? I want you to think on these two things, living like a new creation and making much of Jesus as we kind of unpack baptism and communion a little bit. Because I think that, that gives us some parameters of how to approach these things. Okay, I'm a new creation in Christ. Jesus changed everything. And I'm going to live I'm gonna make in a way that makes much of, of Jesus. Okay, so how do we do that through baptism? How do we do that through communion? So let's look at baptism first. What is baptism? Baptism is a symbolic act of obedience uh, where we are physically immersed in water and then brought up. Now, so you may have seen where some churches do it a little differently just from a, um, a sense of they're not having access to a, a body of water, not want to haul one in. They'll do what's called sprinkling, where the, a pastor, whoever's doing the baptizing, will, will dip their fingers in water, and they'll, they'll either make the sign of the cross on the forehead or just three lines, and they'll say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this is one of we're going to get into that, why, why we do baptism the way we do it. Um, but at, at the end of the day, um, any baptisms that, that we'll do here at Meadowland, we, we do through immersion. Because baptize uh, comes from a Greek word, baptizo and it literally means to immerse of course we don't leave you down there we bring you back up and you know you get a breath of air and all that fun stuff but uh, baptism is a proclamation of a believer's faith in jesus and it's participation symbolically in the death burial and resurrection when you think about that this, you begin to see some of the significance of baptism right the same way we go down under the water and come back up it's a symbolic partnership with Jesus, how he died, was buried, and rose again. One of my favorite stories of baptism that I've heard is uh, a gentleman wore a white t-shirt. And uh, if you're familiar with what happens to a white t-shirt, when they get wet, you can see what's underneath it. And he had worn another shirt uh, that, was, that was white underneath it, but he had words across it. And so that when he went down and the shirts got wet and he came back up, you could see the words across the second shirt, uh, bright as day, and it said, new man. So he went down, came up, a new man. And that's true of all of us when we're baptized. That's true of all of us in Jesus. Even if you haven't been baptized yet, you are still that new creation in Christ. You're just standing in disobedience to God because he calls us to go and be 
baptized. Let me give you a brief history of baptism. Before Jesus came and called uh, his disciples to baptize people in, in, into his name, the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, even before John the Baptist came and, and ba- with the baptism of repentance, that was kind of what he would call people to. He'd say, come be baptized and, and repent of your sins for the kingdom of God is near. He was preparing the way for Jesus. Before all that, there was a history of a baptism. That, that, like I said, that, that Greek word, baptizo, would have been very familiar. That They knew it as to immerse. And uh, you had different religious groups that would use it for different things. It always had kind of the significance of uh, a renewal or a purifying or a cleansing, um, a forgiving aspect. So everyone kind of used it a little bit differently. Um, you can almost trace it all the way back and say, uh, in the Old Testament, we see some of these different laws about uh, washing and being cleansed in water. And so while that's not the same as baptism, uh, while that's not a, necessarily an immer- immersion, sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't, um, but they, they would see those as two different things, but you can see this, this train of thought where it kind of becomes okay, we're being washed by the water, and now there's this thing called baptism. And eventually, even in uh, Jewish practices, um, sometimes what they would do is if you want to convert to Judaism, uh, seven days after a circumcision, they would then have you baptized. It's kind of a sign of that entering into uh, the family of God. And so this was kind of something that was used uh, varyingly. Then you see uh, John the Baptist uses it as a call to repentance. And then Jesus saying, all right, I want you to do this, but you're going to baptize people into my name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So why do we do baptisms? Well, the easy answer is Jesus says so. He, he tells us to. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus speaking to his disciples says this, And Jesus came and said to them, the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I added that bold in there to highlight just the baptizing them. So we're called to go and make disciples, and then once we have someone who's taken that step to become a disciple, a follower of Jesus, what do we do? Well, one of the things we do is we baptize them. Baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So they'd be saying, well, why don't we baptize people the way they were being done in Jesus' day? Let's look at that. How were people baptized at the days of Jesus? Well, the most common way is it'd be some kind of public water source, whether it be a community a pool or, you know, go out to the sea, but there'd be this place, a public place, where other people would be looking around, and you'd go down, and you'd have someone to baptize you. You know, like I said, John baptizing with, with repentance, you know, uh, saying, hey, repent, kingdom of God is near. Now Jesus says, hey, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so that's, that's one way you can see, you know, you saw the, the early church would do that. They'd go and they'd baptize people in, in these public waterways. But see, that wasn't the only way that we see. We see other examples. We see an Ethiopian that, that Philip, uh, one of the disciples, ha- has an interaction with. Uh, and basically, he's reading, he's reading out of Isaiah, and he's like, I don't know what I'm reading. This is just blow my mind. I'm not really sure. Can you help me understand? And Philip's like, yeah, I mean, let me tell you about Jesus. That He's what's being described in, in this prophecy here in Isaiah. And, and he shares the gospel with them. Not the gospel and just the gospel with them. And, and the Ethiopian's like, this is blow my mind. Yes, I, I, you know, Jesus is the Messiah. Um, sh- oh, hey, look. There's a puddle right there. They're, they're on the road in his chariot. There's, there's water right here. Um, some scholars say it was, it was a, small, a small body of water. and it's, 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 Basically, there's a water source here on the side of the road. Should I not be baptized? 
So it wasn't this, hey, I need to get a video first, or I need to put my testimony together, or I need to call my friends and have them gathered around. and say, hey, I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. There's water right there. Let's go dunk me. Let's do this. And you also see a Philippian jailer. Time where Paul and some of his companions were in jail, and it was time where there was an earthquake that busted the doors open, and the jailer comes in, and he sees that you know, the doors are open, and he's like, hey, I'm going to get killed uh, because all the, the people have escaped, so I might as well kill myself. And then Paul's like, oh, no, no, stop, stop. We're still here. We, we didn't go. Don't kill yourself. And they share the gospel with them, and he gives his life over to Jesus. It says that he goes and he's baptized him with his whole household. And, and so basically, and then we say, okay, he went and shared what happened to him, who he knew Jesus to be with his family. And then they all accepted Christ. They all got baptized. And so we see all these different ways in which people were baptized. But the common thread that we see throughout the New Testament is they believed and then were baptized. They believed and they're baptized. And so if someone is saying Jesus plus, you've got to be baptized before you're really... No, that's not what you see in the New Testament. They believed and, 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 and believing that Jesus is Messiah and, and, and trusted all, all the promises of God that come with that are yours in that moment. Then we're called to go and be baptized. This is also why we don't do uh, infant baptism here at Madeline, is because an infant can't express that belief. And it's not necessary either, to be honest. I think one of the reasons that infant baptism came about was this, this misguided understanding, this misguided belief that, um, that baptism saves us, and it doesn't. What saves us from our sins? By grace through faith. We're saved by Jesus. So we don't need to worry, hey, if I don't have my baby, my, my baby or my infant or my small child baptized, what's going to happen you know, if, God forbid, the worst happens and they die and before they're baptized? Our God is not a legalistic God. He's not going to have a, a packing list to say, well, do you have all these checked off? Can you fill all these boxes? If okay, come on in. It's going to be one question. Do you know my son? Do you know Jesus? Have you trusted him as your Lord and Savior? So are you a disciple of Jesus, and have you been baptized? If yes, you're a disciple, and yes, you've been baptized, then live in the reality of your baptism as a new creation. If you're a disciple of Jesus and you've not been baptized, time to take the step of obedience. Time to take that step. And I'm convinced that when we take that, especially in our culture where baptism is weird, Seriously, I mean, what, what correlation is there in our modern day to baptism? We're going to fill a trough with water, we're going to dunk you in it, you're going to pop up, we're going to all cheer and shout, and it's going to be awesome. That's weird. But when we understand what it's about, it's beautiful. And so take this step of obedience. Say, okay, I'll put myself out there and I'll get baptized. And you know what? We'll do it in a way that makes much of Jesus. And so if, if that means we put a testimony video together that we play on a Sunday morning so that people can see what God is doing in your life, not to make much of you, but to make much of Jesus, we'll do that. If we'll do it on a date that we're not baptizing anyone else, just you, because that's the day that your family and friends and those that need to hear the truth about Jesus can come with you to church, we'll baptize you on that day. We'll fill the trough with water. We'll do it on that day. If you want to go down to the lake after service and, and, and we'll find a spot to get in there and we'll dunk you because you know what? You're a follower of Christ and you've not been baptized. We'll do it. So find a way and, and all can have their opportunities to make much of Jesus. But if you're a follower of Christ and have not been baptized, let's take that step together. Put on your communication card. Hey, here's where I'm at. Let's do it. 
will walk that road with you. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, bring it, bring it back to that first question. Who do you say that Jesus is? What are the questions you have around the, that? Let's engage together in those questions. All right, so that's baptism. We're going to jump over to communion. What is communion? Well, communion is an act of remembrance and an act of proclamation. We're going to see the, the passages in 1 Corinthians here in a bit, but it's, it's an act of remembrance and proclamation. We drink a, a cup of remembering that Jesus' blood was shed while we proclaim, in essence, that his blood was shed. We, we eat the bread remembering that his body was broken and proclaiming that truth that his body was broken. Jesus first institutes communion at, at a Passover Seder. Seder is just a, a Jewish term, means uh, service, so at a Passover dinner. Um, in Luke twenty-two nineteen, he says this, And he took bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, them is, is the disciples he's with, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we see some of this heart of remembrance. And the Passover Seder was a time to remember the, the deliverance of the Jews out of Egypt. If you, if you know the history of the Jews, at one point they were enslaved uh, in Egypt for hundreds of years, and then God, uh, through some, some different things, through Moses and through the, the, the plagues, the last one being the death of the firstborn, where death would pass over God's people if they had the blood of the Lamb on their doorposts. And I apologize. I, I do this sometimes. i got to pause in real quick and apologize. Uh, I, I just gave you total information overload. If you don't know what the Passover is, I probably didn't help you. I probably just confused you even more. Let's just leave it as God freed his people from Egypt, and they celebrate that in the Passover. If you want to hear more, I'd love to tell you about it. Come talk to me afterwards. My apologies for kind of doing an information dump there. Um, but they, they, they came. Passover was a time to remember the deliverance of the Jews from Egypt. Communion is a, is a next step in that. It's a time we remember the deliverance from our sins in Jesus. And Jesus, Jesus is making a great connection here with what happened at Passover and now what's happening with him because Jesus changes everything. See, this was a, a yearly celebration that the Jews would have. Uh, they would celebrate the fact they're brought from death into life. They're brought from slavery and bondage into freedom. And the Old Testament commands that they do this, that they remember the Passover. They celebrate it. But the traditions of how do you remember, what does that look like around that, some of those roots even are unknown. You trace it back, well, I'm not really sure when they started to do this as part of a Passover Seder. Uh, they've, they've developed over time and throughout different cultures. You can find Jews that grew up in one part of the world versus Jews that grew up in another part of the world, and while there's similarities in their Passover Seders, there's a lot of differences too because their cultures were different. One of the things that remain common uh, to most Passover seders is that there are four cups that would be drink. So four times you'd fill your glass with wine and, and you would drink. Kind of got your attention now, don't I? And so you'd have uh, these four cups. Again, this isn't something you can find in the scriptures. Here, here's how you celebrate it. This is just that there was these traditions that were put in place. Here's how we celebrate um, the Seder. And the first cup was a cup of sanctification, of a, a, a cleansing. The second one was a cup of the plagues. You remember that the ten plagues the third cup was a cup of redemption, and the fourth cup was a cup of praise. And that third cup, that was the one that Jesus was holding when he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. How significant is that, that he was holding up the cup of redemption, the, the moment of that Passover celebration that the Jews had, had put together all these different things they do to remember and celebrate that and all this uh, uh, imagery and whatnot. So here he's holding up that cup saying, this is a new covenant in my blood. 
I'm bringing redemption, a new promise of redemption, and it's in me. What a beautiful thing. Also, you get to the bread, uh, matzah, unleavened bread, uh, and they have these, these three plates. And, and uh, a friend of mine who, who's a Messianic Jew, we've had a Passover Seder with her and her family before. And, uh, so, so they've always had the three pieces. And you take the middle one at some point in, in the Passover, and it's broken and hidden for later. And then at the end of the meal, you find it, and, and, and then you eat of it. And I don't know about you, but I see all kinds of pointing to Jesus in that. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, and you take the second person of the triune God, and he's broken. His body was broken on the cross, and then it was hidden as he was laid in the grave. And the third day, he rose again. And in her particular Seder, you'd send the kids off to go find it. You'd hide it somewhere in the house, and when they found it, it was a celebration. And I asked her, why do, you, why do they do that? She's like, I have no idea. I have no idea. So in their own traditions, there's developed these things that point to Jesus as the Messiah. They're not even sure how they came about. But that's the bread he was talking about. It's called the afikomen. My body's broken. It's given for you. When you do this, do this in remembrance of me, he's saying. And so Jesus is taking the Passover Seder, and he's changing it all. He's saying, all right, this is now about me. This is about me. We get what's called the Lord's Supper, Communion. Or the Catholics would say the Eucharist. There's a new covenant of redemption. If you want to know why these unleavened bread, that's what they used when they left Egypt. Because they left so quick, they didn't have time to make bread that would rise with the yeast. So they just kind of made bread without yeast and, and, and basically you get crackers. Um, so the question we want to ask here as we wrap up is why don't we do communion the way it was done in Jesus' time? Well, again, what did that look like? Well, it began as that Passover meal for the Jews. And he said, whenever you eat, whenever you drink, a, 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 you know, drink of the cup and eat of the bread, you know, do it in remembrance of me. So you have to imagine, maybe some of the early Jews who, who accepted Jesus as Messiah, they probably maybe only did communion once a year. But then as you see, the gospel go to the Gentiles as well, those who weren't Jewish. And you had this uh, Jewish world and this Gentile world coming together as one in Jesus. We talked about this a little bit last week, how there's all kinds of, what do we do? What does this look like? You want to do all your Jewish stuff, we want to do our Gentile stuff, but we're all passionate about who Jesus is. We say, okay, well, Jesus changed everything. Okay, so now even this Passover Seder changes. No longer is it the celebration of this freedom from Egypt. Now it's a remembrance of Jesus as we proclaim what he has done. There's the forgiveness of sin in Jesus. And so they began to do it more often. They actually began to do it around a meal. They actually began to get a little more, uh, uh, they began to lose sight of it, of what it was all about. We see that in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. If you want to open your Bibles, you can. It'll be on the screen as well. But 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 20. When you come together, is not the Lord's Supper that you eat? Is it, 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 it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? And so you can see Paul's talking to the church there in Corinth. He's saying, you're not taking communion. You're not doing the Lord's Supper. You're not proclaiming Jesus. You're not remembering what he did for you. Some of you are taking this as a time just to feast. And other ones are enjoying the four cups that kind of come with this. And then you're enjoying your wine. You're just getting drunk. See, we see communion in various contexts, but, but the only command is to do it. Whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. This is like baptism. There's very few parameters that we're given, right? But we're called to go and baptize others in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
We're called to go and remember Christ through communion. It's like a wedding ceremony. Here, look through the Bible to see what does the Bible teach us about how to, how to do a wedding. Well, we see when, when God first institutes marriage between Adam and Eve, between a man and a woman, he says, okay, for this reason, you will leave your parents, right? That's the first part. So it, leave your parents, and the two shall be united as one flesh. So leaving your parents and two becoming one. That's all we get. There's no, okay, you have to have you know, a justice of the peace or a pastor. Or, you know, there's other pastors that say we need to obey the laws of the land, obey the laws of our government. That what's okay, here's some things we can do. But, you know, the, the wedding party, having the guys up there, the ring bearer, do, using rings, all that stuff is tradition that's come through the years for various reasons. You say, well, is it biblical? Well, it's not against the word of God, but God doesn't call us to that. So in the same way that we've put together, here's what a marriage looks like, really, what God calls us to is, is for two to become one in marriage. And so let's follow our culture. How can we make much of Jesus in our marriage? In the same way, communion, called to do it in remembrance of Jesus. And we're going to see in a minute that also is a proclamation of Jesus. And we're given very few specifics. And so would it be appropriate if we were a part of a Passover Seder to see that third cup and the afikoman as the blood and as the body? Yeah. So we just do it once a year? I think we can do it more. Okay, so how often do we do it? When do we do it? Do we use crackers? Do we use bread? Do we use those wafers that some denominational churches have that either you love or hate? Do we use one cup that we all drink out of? Do we use these little plastic shot glasses? Do we use the prepackaged travel kit which has the bread and the juice all in one? You kind of peel back and go. That stuff, we can do different things intentionally to say, okay, well, maybe we want to try to connect in with, with that, that truth in the story of the Passover. Also, we want to make much of Jesus. And so if we're doing that in communion, the way we do communion, awesome. We fulfilled what the Scriptures would call us to. There's other wisdom around this we don't have time to get into this morning, but when it comes down to what do we do, we do communion. 1 Corinthians 11, 26-29. This is a continuation of that verse I just read. We say, okay, uh, Paul's like, hey, you guys aren't doing this right. Let me tell you, here's what it is. You know, he kind of goes through when Jesus first instituted it. And then he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. When we take communion, do it in remembrance of Jesus, remembering that salvation comes through him. Do it as a proclamation we see there. Verse 26, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's why we say if you're not a follower of Jesus, we'd ask you not to take communion. Because you're basically saying, I have sin that's undealt with. I still stand opposed to God because I've not dealt with my sin in Jesus. It's a proclamation of Jesus. And it's also a call to examine ourselves. And if we're doing that, awesome. We're fulfilling the call to communion. It's okay to do it a different way at times. It's okay to, to not follow the Passover Seder. All that stuff then becomes what's wise. We can walk that road together. So do the sacraments matter? Well, for salvation, no. They don't. When it comes to issues of salvation, this is not Jesus and. But for living as a new creation and making much of Jesus as we live an obedient life to him, yes, they do matter. Yes, we should be baptized as disciples of Jesus. And yes, we should celebrate communion. 
Let us live as a new creation and use these as opportunities to make much of Jesus. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for these things that some call sacraments, some call ordinances, we call baptism and communion. Thank you that you command us to do them because we know that it's for our good. Help us, Father, uh, to continue to obey you by baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit when they trust in you. By continuing to celebrate communion, Father. Help us to continue to build a culture around those things that, that is full of wisdom and intentionality that makes much of you, Father. Where you've not spoken to the specifics of, here's what it looks like, let, let us put wisdom today, let us seek you, Father, in that, and, and do it in a way I guess, that makes so much of you to our, our, our surroundings, that our friends and family and neighbors and community would see you because of what you're doing in us. Reveal yourself to them. We thank you, Father, for your promises. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that that walking with Jesus is simple. Yes, there's all kinds of questions that can come up. We can begin with who do we say that Jesus is and once we see him as Lord and Savior, Father, all else is good for conversation, but we can be confident in our eternity in you. Pray us all in your name. Amen.